And welcome back, everyone. We've got another great guest for you today. It is Brian Egger. He is the senior gaming analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, one of the most knowledgeable people about the business of sports betting in all of America. And he's going to give us some insight as to where the industry is today, where it's going, and who the likely winners and losers are. There's a lot of companies that are competing in this space, uh, spending a lot of money to grab gamblers and get them onto their sites. Um, and some are going to come out winners and some are going to come out losers. So we're going to talk about all that with Brian Egger. Brian, thanks for coming on the show. Nice to be here. So let's start with this the size of the sports betting market. I think what most people think of when they think of the gambling market in the U.S. is you've got Las Vegas, you've got uh, the rest of Nevada, you've got New Jersey, you've got all the Indian gaming. Separating it out, I guess, as far as general revenues, all the land, what we call land-based gaming, all of the casinos and the money that that makes from a gaming perspective compared to everything that's going on on the internet these days, which is really the new explosion in the U.S. We didn't have internet gaming 10 years ago, and uh, now we've got it in, in a ton of states. How, how would you balance out how much the, the, the companies are making on the land base versus the internet these days? So if you look at yeah the commercial land-based casino industry, that's probably 30, $40 billion in revenue if you add up all the states. If you look specifically at online gambling, uh, both sports betting and online casino games, uh, that is roughly a $12.5 billion industry. So not quite as much by revenue, but still a lot of dollars wagered. And if you break that down further, um, that $12.5 billion is about $7.5 billion from sports betting online and about five, almost $5.5 billion from online casino games. So you get to kind of $12.5 billion that way. And it's legal in a number of different states, which we can talk about. But Obviously, the online portion of gambling is growing quite quickly. And these are revenues you're talking about, not income, not net income. That, that's because right. That's revenue. It's not dollars wagered. It's not the income. It's just basically the revenue generated and retained right. by online casinos and sports books. And, and superficially, you would think that internet gaming is more profitable than land-based because land-based you've got all the infrastructure and the guys dealing the cards and the uh the facilities etc cetera, etc cetera. is it more profitable is internet gaming more profitable so right now if you look particularly i'll focus on sports betting for a moment because it's very topical um right now on a, if you look at what we call ebitda earnings before interest taxes, depreciation, amortization. You know, on that basis, the major operators are not yet profitable. They will be likely later this year, you know, for the full year. And the reason that is because it's quite a new industry because really online sports betting in particular really took off uh, five years ago when the Supreme Court basically liberalized some pre-existing restrictions that had previously limited uh, sports betting, mostly to Nevada. And since that time, because of a Supreme Court decision, um, you now have online sports betting in roughly two dozen states, right? So it's still a relatively new industry. And as new states emerge, we've had, you know, for example, Massachusetts, online sports betting begins today, right? So it's still a rapidly emerging industry. And as you enter a new state, the startup costs and the costs related to acquiring customers and marketing can be quite high. So in the to the extent that this is still relatively a nascent industry, um, it's approaching um, in some quarters it reaches, but is not yet on a full year basis at 
what we call operating profitability. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've got kind of a uh, Uber Lyft situation going on, right? Where you've got companies that are willing to lose lots and lots of money to gain market share with the idea that at some point we're going to flip the switch and this thing is going to be Uber profitable. Exactly. So like in the New Jersey, which is really one of the first and the biggest among the biggest sports betting markets, um, you know, that state has really been operational in the sports betting sense for almost five years. And so, you know, that's in a much more profitable state compared to states like Kansas or Ohio or Massachusetts, which are just launching in recent months or launching currently. Yeah. And and what is what are they learning from New Jersey? Since New Jersey is so far ahead of the others, is it did it finally turn profitable for these companies in New Jersey? So, you know, so it does on a state-by-state basis, you'll see more states reach a level of profitability and it will take time for others. Um, so you, you've got a couple of impediments to getting to profitability. One is just the time to scale and build up a customer base. You've got also the upfront costs um, of acquiring customers and marketing and extending promotions to build a, uh, a customer following. And then the third can also be you know, taxes, which vary widely by state. So in New York State, for example, online sports betting, sports betting revenue is taxed at 51% compared to, you know, much lower rates in other states. So state-level tax rates, startup promotions, customer acquisition spending, uh, it, you know, all these startup costs and costs of doing business can require a somewhat longer runway in order to attain profitability. Wow. I had not heard about the 51% in New York. So walk us through that. That's 51% of what? Of gross gaming revenue. So essentially, you know, that's kind of a top line tax. And, you know, the market, well, New York has emerged very quickly since launching last January, um, January 2022, as the largest state online sports betting market. Uh, but we'll face a, a challenge to, to reach that level of profitability partly because of that high tax rate. So, you know, we have different degrees of competition, different degrees of taxes, and different startup and implementation challenges in different states. Um, Still potentially a lot of uh, money wagered. And, you know, certainly in terms of the handle or dollars wagered, sports betting online is quite popular, you know, but the path to profitability is really tiered and staggered by state. And um, it does take some time to reach that level of profitability. One thing that's kind of interesting is that I've always heard that at the land-based casinos, the brick and mortar, that the sports book isn't really that profitable. It takes up a lot of space. The games take a few hours to play out before the the casino wins or loses. And it's almost kind of a loss leader. Is, is, Is that correct? So historically before mobile, I mean, that's correct to degree. You know, if you look at Nevada, which was the longest standing sports betting market before, um, you know, 2018, when everything liberalized, you principally had, you principally had brick and mortar sports books. And I would, I would agree to the extent that brick and mortar sports books are almost like a, an ancillary business. They only comprise about two to 3% of the total casinos gaming revenue, but they can be important as a traffic driver and bring in customers, particularly during very popular sporting events. So that brick and mortar sports betting business historically resided in Nevada inside a casino, and it's really uh, a comparably small revenue generator and drives traffic to other parts of the casino. That's quite different from mobile, where you look at New Jersey, for example, even though every casino in Atlantic City has a sports book and the major racetracks have sports books, 85% or so of New Jersey's uh, wagering comes from mobile, right? So even though you've got these large brick and mortar um, sports books, the mobile portion in states where mobile is permitted and not just brick and mortar uh, generates considerably larger 
amounts of wagering dollars because it's convenient, it's readily available, and uh, quite popular among bettors. So 85% of sports betting in New Jersey is online? Essentially online or mobile as compared to the um, brick and mortar portion. Right. Right. So, yeah. Yet yet you have uh, a lot of states as they consider legalizing sports betting. The big question for a lot of them is, okay, are we going to allow it online or are we going to allow it only at the brick and mortar locations? But the two things are night and day, right? Like California, for instance. Yeah. Yeah, California just had two initiatives on the ballot. I'm sure you're very familiar with. One of them would have allowed it solely at the tribal casinos and the racetracks, and the other would have allowed it um, on the internet. And both of them, kind of ironically, were defeated. defeated. Uh, But it would have been a huge difference in California as far as state revenue if the one had been approved for internet as opposed to simply the land-based. Absolutely. I mean, you look at other examples like New York State had sports betting at brick and mortar sites at four upstate casinos uh, for some time. And then in January, 2022, they launched mobile sports betting. You know, likewise, look at Massachusetts. They kind of had a two-stage launch of sports betting. The three casinos in the States launched on-premises sports books in January, but mobile betting in that state starts today at roughly 10 different uh, mobile uh, websites, including those run by some of the casino affiliated sports books as well as some others like DraftKings and FanDuel. How about the same comparison when it comes to online casino gaming? So first of all, let's start with how, how many states allow you not just a sports bet, but you go online and you can play uh, blackjack, craps, roulette, et cetera. So that's a really good question. You know, the the online casinos or iCasinos as we call it, really only exists in seven US states. So it's really not as widely distributed. You've got sports betting and online sports betting in some two dozen states, about 24, 25 states in Washington, D.C., but you've only got online casinos in about seven states. In states where both exist, um, online casinos are actually quite popular. And if you look at examples like Michigan, where you've got both, you actually get more revenue coming in there from online casinos than online sports books. However, online casinos are uh, are only really operating seven states, right? So mm-hmm. it's very popular where it exists, but it only operates in seven states. So whatever these huge numbers we're hearing about current sports betting online and the potential for it, what we're really talking about is something that could be far greater than that even if and when states start allowing all the casino games, the, the big one I missed, I should have said slots, because obviously slots is probably the biggest of those. But we're talking about huge potential dollars if the states start going in that direction. Yeah, it's definitely, a. would say, the more untapped part of the market is the iCasino part of the market, where it exists. And it exists alongside sports betting in states like New Jersey and Pennsylvania uh, and in Michigan, uh, quite popular, and in some cases generates more revenue than the sports betting piece. But again, we're kind of limited to uh, only seven states right now, but it's definitely very popular when it does exist. How would you explain why it is that so many states have approved sports betting uh, first, you know, uh, instead of casino betting? Yeah, I think it's it's a good question. I think uh, not every state has been willing to go the extra distance of allowing such easy access to kind of mobile casino games. Whereas I think sports betting, you know, sports betting existed uh, via kind of a gray market and illegal venues for a long, long time. But it's only within the last five years that it's been legal everywhere. And I think the Supreme Court's decision five years ago really kind of opened up the floodgates, both to mobile and brick and mortar betting, you know, kind of a widely accepted activity, widely distributed, and 
rapidly emerged in different states uh, with, I think, a, a fairly clear-cut sense that you can now do this, you know, it's constitutional, and various states have developed regulatory apparatuses to, to, to monitor it. You know, I think iCasino, it's taken a little bit longer, even though in many ways it's kind of a complementary business. Mm-hmm. It's been really interesting to see how the various interests have lined up supporting and opposing and how they tend to flip sides. So, you know, one of them to talk about is, of course, the sports leagues. And that's something that seems to give a cloak of uh, legitimacy um, and acceptability to the sports betting because all the leagues are now on board with it. Yeah, that's true. Initially, you know, the you know the Supreme Court case in which the, um, the, the sports books got a right to operate nationally was really uh, the NCAA versus, you know, the governor at the time of New Jersey, right? So it was really the leagues opposed to it. But the leagues are now, I think you can say, either involved uh, with a lot of partnerships, not necessarily exclusive partnerships with different sports books. And also where the leagues, leagues have really benefited is they, they have become uh, data providers, in some case, like for the NFL, exclusive data providers to the sports books. So they're really, they're quite, um, quite significant um, entities involved sort of as part of this ecosystem, and they do provide a lot of this data, which is so critical to the industry. And then you've got the casinos, which typically were opposing internet gaming. You, you know, they they had a monopoly on it. Why would you want people to be able to stay at home and gamble? Um, I think Sheldon Adelson uh, of Sands was one of the biggest opponents of it. And I don't know if he, is, is he still with us, by the way? No, Sheldon passed away and Sands, um, has not Sands has talked about getting involved in more of an incubator incubator B two B capacity rather than actually operating sports books. Uh, but to your point, I'm well well taken. Um, but if you think about like the sports book industry, you're right. Casinos weren't necessarily all on board. But if you think about what dominates the industry today, it's really kind of two categories. It's the fantasy sports operators, the legacy DraftKings and FanDuel, which before sports betting was legal, really got their name by operating daily fantasy sports platforms which translated or trans, you know, kind of um, evolved very naturally into sports betting. And then the other realm, you've got the casinos where you've got probably the two largest that come to mind are BetMGM, which is a joint venture of MGM Resorts and Tain. And then you've got Caesars, which bought William Hill to build out um, its sports book. So you're absolutely right that although they additionally were not on board, you've now got most of the major casino companies involved uh, win to some more of a limited degree with WinBet, Penn National or Penn Entertainment certainly involved via its um, um, its acquisition of Barstool. So you do have now the major casino companies involved either directly or through joint ventures in having these sports books. So um, at the top of the list here, I see of largest, and I, I don't know if this, how accurate this list is, but largest gaming company, publicly traded gaming companies is Las Vegas Sands. And my sheet here is missing the number, but I, I, I thought it was like 50 billion or something. Is that- Yeah, correct, about- you're correct. And interestingly, Las Vegas Sands, although it has that name, no longer has uh, brick and mortar casinos in the US because they sold their Las Vegas operations. So right now they're involved uh, from a brick and mortar perspective. They're involved exclusively in Macau and Singapore. They may, you know, they're very much a contender for a license opportunity in New York State. So they're all likelihood they want to get back into the U.S. market. Um, but yeah, you're, you're right. They've not been involved in online to date. And even their U.S. operations, they, they are principally right now focused on Asia. Wow. Well, yeah, they're making so much money in Macau that uh, it's, it's a nice distraction to have. So that, that's their focus. And that's what makes them by far 
the largest gaming company in the world? Uh, absolutely. You know, if you think about just the size of the company now, this will vary over time based on the stock price. If you measure size by market value or market capitalization, it also varies by gaming revenue because Macau, uh, during the downturn, um, largely due to the pandemic, uh, really lost a significant amount of its gaming revenue and is now a much smaller market and is sort of gradually climbing its way back, right? So, but still, historically, if you go back to pre-pandemic, uh, Macau is a much larger gaming revenue market than Las Vegas. It's only in recent years that you reach more of a parity because, because Macau was so hard hit by the dynamics of the pandemic. Yeah. I, I got to ask you one Macau question because it's always on, on my mind and I feel like I've gotten different answers depending on who, who I ask. The amount of money being gambled at these Macau casinos just blows away Vegas, right? It's just not even close. The size of their floors are way bigger uh, than Vegas. Vegas has moved well beyond the, the casino gaming floor and all kinds of other elements of ways to make money and, and food and beverage and entertainment and, and so on. And whereas Macau continues to be primarily about gaming, which the gaming companies love that being the primary focus because that when it's doing well is the most profitable part of the business. But when, when I see the numbers coming out of there, they're, they're so incredible that I wonder how much of this is effectively being used by wealthy Chinese to move money out of China and, and, and that Macau is a good way of doing this. I don't want to say launder the money, but as a way of just kind of getting it out of China, as opposed to these are just genuinely people who love gambling. So you're, you're right about this to the extent that, you know, going back again, maybe more, more than a year ago, uh, the large, the vast bulk of revenue generated by Macau casinos was from the so-called VIP Bokrot business, you know, very high-end wagering, mostly on the game of Bokrot, accounting for the preponderance of gaming revenue in Macau. And that really changed where effectively about a year ago, um, the uh, local authorities essentially uh, put a ban on junket related credit activity and really shut down a significant part of that so-called VIP Baccarat business, placing a greater emphasis on the so-called mass market business. Now, some of that mass market business is still quite high end, still involves Baccarat, but it does involve, as it did before, these large junket operators extending credit. Uh, and acting as intermediaries. So the game has changed quite a bit because of the uh, shut off of a lot of the junket intermediated business, uh, but it's still potentially a very large business. What's really held Macau back, I think, in the recovery is not only that shutdown of VIP junket credit business, but also the fact that until very recently, there were significant travel restrictions affecting the ability to travel within, outside of China and have travel going from mainland China and Guangdong province which is a major feeder market to Macau. That seems to be loosening up now with, re with restrictions lifting on uh, travel activity. And that lifting of travel restrictions should be a catalyst for growth in the so-called mass market Macau business. All right, well, let's leave it there. We got to take a break and then we come back. Let's, let's bring it back to uh, sports betting and talk about this launch in, in Massachusetts and who's likely to do mess there. We got Brian Egger, Senior Gaming Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. We'll be right back. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transform, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, 
thought leaders and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcast, and now available on YouTube. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel. Did you know virtually all vessels traveling in the U.S. have to be American-built, owned, and crewed? That's thanks to the Jones Act, which is the bedrock of the American maritime industry. On the American Maritime Podcast, we cover the topics that matter most to the 650,000 men and women of American maritime, while also being accessible for the average listener to learn about this industry. Every episode features a new guest, including congressional leaders, senior military officials, leading policy analysts, and other experts. Come aboard and listen wherever you get your podcasts or watch on the American Maritime Partnership's YouTube channel. Happy St. Patrick's weekend, everyone. We had a big buy, hold, sell episode this week, getting into the issues with the banking sector and what you as an investor should do about it. And of course, leading up to next week's all-important Fed meeting, Toby and I discussed what should happen and what a potential non-hike in interest rates will really do to stocks and the economy. It's an absolute can't-miss buy, hold, sell. Be sure to download the March 14th episode on the Evergreen Podcast Network or on your favorite podcast channel. And welcome back, everyone. We are talking to Brian Egger, Senior Gaming Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, one of the foremost gaming experts in America. Um, and we're just talking about uh, the SANS and, and how well they're doing in Macau, largest gaming company in the world. Uh, you touched on something that I, I just want to follow up on before I move on because I wasn't aware of it. So I didn't know that SANS is out of Vegas. So they had the Venetian and the Palazzo. Uh, tell me, when was that sold and who was it sold to? Uh, sold to Paul about, about it a year, say about a year ago. Um, and so that's kind of a major shift for them, but they really have been increasingly focused in terms of their overall business uh, on developing in Asia. They put significant amounts of money to expanding their footprint um, in Macau uh, and, you know, they, as well as in Singapore. So that's really where they're focused right now. But they made it quite clear they were interested in a potential, uh, you know, brick and mortar sports bet, um, brick and mortar casino opportunity rather in New York. So we'll see if that happens in New York City. And sorry, so who bought the Venetian? Apollo. Oh, okay. Is that their first hotel casino in Vegas? So you know it, it's a major it's a major uh, departure for them. Uh, Apollo Funds basically bought Venetian. They've been involved in different parts of the gaming sector, uh, but you know I think for for Las Vegas Sands, I think part of the realization was they were generating far more revenue from Macau in any case, and it really was an opportunity maybe to find 
some other U.S. markets that have, you know, from their perspective, real development opportunities. So I don't think SANS is done with the U.S. They certainly have been quite vocal about their interest in building a, a sort of land-based casino in New York City. Uh, but, you know, it is quite a bit of a departure for them. They, they basically sold the Vegas properties in February of 2022. Wow. Yeah, those are, I think they're the largest uh, hotels as far as sheer number of rooms, I think, uh, Palazzo and Venetian. Yeah, so, I mean, MGM had more, always had more exposure there because they got 10 hotels, but as actual standalone entities, they're quite large. Yeah. All right. So today just happens to be the launch day for sports betting in Massachusetts. So kind of handicap it for us a little bit based on the current lay of the land. Uh, who will be opening up a website in Massachusetts today? And who's likely to to do the best? So we basically have six different um, sites launching today. I've got FanDuel, DraftKings, uh, BetMGM, Win, uh, Caesars, and Barstool, which is which is owned by Penn. Uh, there were basically ten overall authorized. So a few of these will be opening later, either uh, in the next couple of months or sometime next year. So you've got basically ten authorized uh, mobile sportsbook operators, six of which launched today. That itself is kind of surprising because the state really authorized effectively 15 different mobile authors. And a number of those um, licensed slots either went unclaimed uh, or actually had the few operators, the most notably Bet365 and PointsBet, um, were going to apply for licenses and kind of late in the game decided not to pursue the market, at least for now, um, which I think is, you know, from their perspective, probably a rational decision. As much as Massachusetts is a promising sports betting market, uh, you know, the industry is quite competitive and you're entering a state like Massachusetts to be, you know, one of 15 mobile operators alongside the brick and mortar uh, operators in that state, you know, is, is could be quite daunting in terms of building a base of business in that, in that uh, state. So, you know, these are cases where you've got non-U.S. based operators, Bet365 and PointsBet, that decided to um, kind of stay on the sidelines for now. and I think you may see more instances like that as the industry matures, although I'm hopeful that customer acquisition and marketing spending will become less intense anyway over time. Um, it's also possible you'll see other states like Massachusetts where um, some prospective license applicants decide not to make a go of it, at least at this point. So in most of these markets on the day of launch, FanDuel and DraftKings already has a built-in advantage because they've already been operating there with fantasy sports and have a ton of built-in players, correct? I mean, that's that's correct, despite the fact that they don't have the associated casinos, let's say, that BetMGM has. You know, Ohio is an interesting case in point. Ohio launched uh, sports betting um, and mobile betting in January. And just for the month of January, which was reported recently, uh, FanDuel and DraftKings together generated 77% of the betting handle. So it's quite obvious those two platforms are really dominant. The largest is is, is FanDuel in most states. Um, and FanDuel and DraftKings tend to be the market share leaders in large part, yes, because they have that pre-existing association with their daily fantasy sports apps. Uh, and they have that kind of customer following. And they've been quite effective um, in, you know, as, as sports betting goes from being limited to a number of states to now upwards of 25 states, you know, these companies like DraftKings that have a presence everywhere can also switch to national advertising, which is much more cost effective, for example, than, you know, state or local advertising. Um, when we just talk about gross sports betting revenue um, in the U.S., FanDuel's number one? 
So FanDuel overall would be number one. If you, I'm just looking, it's like FanDuel's market share, as we measured it for the month of December, kind of a year in point, um, they were about 40% of the New York market. They were about 30% of Michigan uh, and between 40 and 50% of Pennsylvania and New Jersey. So FanDuel itself is, is quite strong. DraftKings is usually you know, a solid second. And you know, among the others that you would think of as sort of casino um, affiliated types of sports books, BetMGM and Caesars usually fit in quite prominently. And then you've got other operators that um, have perhaps smaller shares that, you know, Barstool, because of its historical ties to Massachusetts, may have a chance to build a bit of a bigger share with its launch uh, today in uh, Massachusetts. But, uh, you know, it is a market where, you know, the, the, the big companies tend to be quite dominant. Does it make any sense for these other companies to, to start fantasy sports in the states that haven't approved sports betting? I mean, you got some big ones out there. You got Florida, California and Texas. Um, once those finally go live, FanDuel and DraftKings are going to have their built in base where they just flick a switch. And now sports betting, whereas everybody else has to kind of start from scratch a little bit. No. I mean, that's, that's true to a degree. I mean, the fantasy sports legacy business definitely um, helps. We don't talk about it too much today, but I was, you know, was at a gaming conference this week where it was pointed out, and it's true that, you know, deadly fantasy sports um, still remains quite a you know, significant industry, despite the fact that you now have real money sports betting in so many states. And I looked at, for example, Pennsylvania, which is one of the states that discloses operator-specific deadly fantasy sports activity. And, you know, the, the fees, game fees collected from entrance fees from Pennsylvania were, were slightly larger in 2022 than they were in 2019. So even though you've got all this effective, if you could view it as competition from actual real money sports betting, the Dell Fantasy sports platforms, particularly those run by DraftKings and FanDuel, still have, you know, uh, quite a stable business. And so the total revenue from the fantasy sports sites in Pennsylvania versus full-fledged sports betting. Do we know that the difference between those? Um, yeah, I, I don't have that at my fingertips, but you know, it's um, you know, we, we tend to get more state-specific data from some states about daily fantasy sports, but um, I don't have any directly comparable numbers. But let me ask you, what about FanDuel? Why why is FanDuel beating DraftKings? Yeah, you know, I think um, it's a good question. They are they're certainly close and I can't point to any one specific reason in any state, but, you know, certainly from the perspective of marketing, broad distribution, um, you know, effective customer acquisition, repeat business, you know, it's, uh, it, it, frankly, it's a pretty, you know, the, you'd be in a very good position to have market shares as large as FanDuel or DraftKings. I think the real challenge will be, aside from uh, some differences in revenue market share where FanDuel is larger, is getting to that level of uh, what we call EBITDA profitability. And bringing down customer acquisition costs, because regardless of the size of market share, you know what matters to investors going forward, obviously, is the ability of these companies to generate positive operating profit. And I think they're approaching that level. I think all the major operators, meaning DraftKings, FanDuel, um, BetMGM, um, Caesars, you know, have that opportunity this year to kind of reach the point of, of profitability. They're typically most profitable during the fall third quarter, you know, the fourth quarter rather, because of NFL football related sports betting, uh, you know, but as they, uh, as the business matures, as they bring down customer acquisition costs, um, as those kind of startup related expenses uh, kind of move, move behind them, you know, I think the more important thing is investors will start to pay very close attention to how quickly they can turn profitable in these states. So customer acquisition, as far as I can tell, it seems to be all about 
put a hundred bucks in, we'll match it with a hundred dollars of free play, um, which is effectively like $50 to the, to the, uh, the host. But um, is that it? Is that what all of them are doing or has any of them gotten more creative than that? I mean, there's different types of uh, kind of customer acquisition efforts, but you're absolutely right. Promotions and uh, kind of the giveaways you're talking about are part of it. Uh, some of the related advertising marketing has to do with putting forward very popular wagers like same game parlays and, and bringing those types of betting opportunities to better's attention. Traditional media, um, you know, television advertising, you know, when certainly when Caesars effectively relaunched its brand in the fall of uh, 2021, they were definitely very aggressive in terms of bringing up, bringing their TV commercials on. Um, but I think what, you know, I think what is at least initially encouraging about, for example, recent results from DraftKings is in addition to bringing down, trying to bring down some of these uh, promotional and customer acquisition costs, um, you know, they're also finding ways to include, you know, maintain their player retention. Um, they are, for a variety of reasons, reducing some of their compensation expense and staffing in certain cases, and that obviously uh, can reduce some of the expenses. But, you know, through ongoing player retention, more focused and targeted marketing and customer acquisition. In other words, try to be more targeted about it and not having, you know, spending money on customers that are likely to, to become profitable customers. You know, they're, they're approaching a point where they have the potential to be profitable. Yeah, well, I, I know what's happening in a lot of states. My, my brother in particular is doing it in Arizona where everybody is signing up for all the different sites to get their free play, their free hundred bucks for all the different sites. And, um, you know, who they ultimately land with I don't know, but when you got all the sites offering the free hundred dollar, the hundred dollars of free play, they're going to all give that out, and then the player is going to play through that, or a lot of them will anyway, and then ultimately decide not to play anymore, or perhaps just pick one of the ten to play with. That's got to be a challenge. Yeah, I think it's also a question not only how much they're spending, but to whom those promotions are targeted, right? You know, so they think the kind of uh, casting a very wide net works to a degree to get a lot of customers. But, um, you know, I think the sports books are trying to think become more sophisticated about finding out who their high work, high spending betters are and to use those kind of, uh, you know, do a lot of things a lot of the casinos do, which is become more sophisticated about targeting promotions and targeting offers and targeting marketing um, collateral towards the individuals that are most likely to be repeat um, higher spending customers. Mm -hmm. And then of course the experience once you're on the site is going to be really important. I don't know if the, the sites have distinguished themselves uh, among them, each other that much. One thing I've been hearing about that I'm curious to get your thoughts about is exchange wagering, which is my understanding where they're placing one player against the other. You're not betting against the house. They're just matching up two players uh, to, to, to bet however they, they want to bet. Do you see that as something that could become big and or any of the big companies offering that? There's definitely, um, it's a little bit outside the realm of some, what some of the more established uh, companies are doing. But I, I think if you want to call it social or peer-based wagering, um, that's definitely gotten more of the attention of the industry. And so I think you're seeing more examples like this where companies want to either, you know, people want to bet with their friends or, uh, you know, they're sort of not outside the mainstream and sort of betting against the house. There's an interest in maybe betting against against the social community. So I think that does have the potential over time uh, to become a more, more interesting business. Last question. Seems like there are lots of blue skies ahead. As I mentioned, California has got to come online eventually, Texas, Florida. 
when we look at these stocks and people are looking at possibly trying to get in on this and 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 buy into one of these companies, is all that blue sky pretty much as far as you can tell priced in to these stocks? It's pretty much assumed that there's going to be major growth, or if a California came online, we that would be seen as something that would move uh, the the value of these companies. Yeah, I won't talk to specific stocks, but I will say uh, that the market uh, overall was sending out a signal, perhaps. You know, a year ago, uh, where you know the relative stock price performance of online gaming companies relative to, let's say, brick and mortar gaming companies or the broad stock market was uh, was underperforming. And I think you can certainly associate some of that underperformance to the fact that there was investor concern about the level of marketing spending, about you know what seemed to be a long path to profitability, and the reaction we were getting from investors broadly. I'm talking about the industry overall was one of, I think, concern um, about the level of spending required to acquire, to, to basically require and retain customers. Um, so I can't speak to the future direction, but I will say that a very important benchmark of success for the public company investor for sports spending companies will be the, the ability of these companies to build and retain customers without uh, continuing to, to spend and defer the time at which they can become profitable. I mean, I think mm-hmm. the good news is we, did, we have begin, begun to see some signs in the most recent uh, company reporting quarter where we seem to be at least seeing a more rational environment in terms of that type of spending. And, and as sports spending markets mature, uh, one would hope that the level of that kind of customer acquisition spending will be less intense. Yeah, all you got to do is look across the pond to Europe that's had it a lot longer than we have, and presumably they've yes. moved past all that, and now they're wildly profitable. Yeah, I think certainly Europe, UK, those markets are much more established and mature than the US, where really, in particularly in terms of sports betting, they basically had a kind of a, a an impediment to, to broad-based sports betting up until uh, 2018 and the repeal of the uh, of the existing apparatus that basically prevented sports betting from existing nationally. Brian Egger, really appreciate your time. Senior gaming analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, is there a place where people can kind of follow you? Uh, sure, you can follow me. Um, there are a couple different ways. Uh, one is on LinkedIn. <laughs> Definitely find me there. But also my uh, my Twitter handle is Eggernomics, E-D-G-E-R-N-O-M-I-C-S, at Eggernomics. Okay. Awesome. Brian Egger, really appreciate you coming on the show. That was uh, really insightful. Appreciate it. Thanks very much. All right. I want you to smash that like button. (laughs) On any given day in Washington, policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of people and organizations working behind the scenes. On 80 Proof Politics, a guest and I will visit a D.C. watering hole and distill the art of advocacy by pulling back the curtain a bit and taking a look at how they play their part in the sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink, and join us. After all, what goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one?